Hi, I'm Derek McFadden, proud to be an author, a poet, and a lover of most things pop culture. I am also handicapped, born with a mild form of cerebral palsy. But please note, this podcast is not called Handicapped Writer. It is instead titled Writing While Handicapped, because that's what I do. Join me as we talk with folks in the book world. And this podcast looks at the world of literature from a perspective you haven't seen before. Welcome into a brand new episode of Writing While Handicapped. I'm here with author Tom Reed. His new book is Pocketful of Posies, and that's P-O-S-E-Y-S, because they're a family. It's not the flower, because it's not. So explain to us, Tom, where the idea came from. Well, the the idea originally came from witnessing my mother-in-law, Claudia Grant, who lost her husband, my mother's father, and shortly after was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And... Mm really felt as though the uh, diagnosis was was sort of her body telling her it was time to to, to move along. And so she gathered my, my wife and uh, her two brothers and just laid it all on the table. And they said they could support her in doing this. And uh, part of her plan was after it was all over. And that's the way she said it. When this is all over, I want you all to take a trip with all your families and, and go off and, and uh, just be together and remember us and have a wonderful time. And that was, to me, such a stunning and, and kind of um, heroic way to, to sort of take control of her own destiny. And I, I thought there was potentially a, a story there. And, and so I, I wrote the story of Cindy Posey, which is in some ways parallel. But uh, as my wife has insisted, I tell anybody I'm talking about the book with Cindy uh, Posey and, and, uh, and Claudia Grant have as about as much in common, finally, as Janis Joplin and Julie Andrews. I mean, they're not at all, not at all the same person. But, but she was the launch pad, and, and right. story wouldn't exist without her. And I and I like to think that even though she was uh, nothing extravagant about her as a person, she had a great sense of humor. And I like to think that she would have been happy. She could have inspired a book like uh, Pocket Full of Posies. The I mean the character of Cinny is just such a great character. I was reading it with my girlfriend and she was like, I love Cinny. Cinny is the best. <laughs> and so I, I just wanted to tell you that character hit in the heart. Um oh, thank you. So are you in this book? I know sometimes authors put themselves mm-hmm. in a book. Are you in the book? Would you be somebody like Jack or are you not um, in the book and kind of like Yeah. Yeah, that is a that's a great question. I, I think there, there are parts of Jack that are that are sort of like me. I mean, I, I, uh, I have a watch collection. I've got a watch collection that's nothing like my son's. I mean, he's the one who got me going on this. And in some way, that the chapter where Jack is is buying Grace a watch is kind of my homage to my son uh, mm-hmm. and a kind of way of thanking him for infecting me with this interest <laughs> in, in timepieces. But yeah, the, there, there are times when Jack, who's a good-hearted guy who occasionally sticks his foot in it, you know, I mean, we all do that. And yes. I certainly identify with him in that. Frank Posey's not on center stage much, but he was a literature professor. And, and I think there's an, inevitably a, a fair amount of me in, in him as well. And I think Brian also, his his feeling of, of sort of playing second fiddle to his sister, mm-hmm. My sister was a brilliant academic, and and I, you know, kept my head above water as a college professor. But but I was really nothing quite like her, nor did I really aim to be. But but I think there's a little bit of of me relative to my sister Penelope, and in, in uh, 
uh, Brian's relationship to Grace. So yeah, there, there are those people. And then honestly, Sage was kind of the character that got away from me. I thought I thought she was just going to be a kind of valley girl type with maybe a little more sophistication. And when she starts kind of going after Jack with with sort of these feminist analyses of, of the bias inherent in language. <laughs> that's that's sort of me teaching a critical methods class in my mm-hmm. last years at Dickinson. So I, I let her I let her kind of voice some of the wishes for social change that that I sometimes feel myself. So yeah, is was that something because sometimes authors will start writing and then characters will just take over their parts of the book. Did you feel like that's what um that's what Sage did? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah. Um, she she really did, and and I I wasn't sure what her relationship to Jack was going to be. Jack is kind of her uncle, I suppose, and yeah. and he's uh, he's from Clearwater, Florida, and was a UVA lacrosse player. And if there's a bro in the book, it's it's he. And she comes out of a culture, a California culture that's, or actually Seattle culture, that's not got anything to do with that. And they were kind of like at loggerheads initially. Yep. Um, and and their developing affection for each other really kind of surprised me. And Sage had a real bum for a father. And, and I think she begins to see that Jack is a, an older male who may be infected with some of the things she doesn't like to see in, in men. But but she ultimately ultimately sees him, I think, as as a kind of father figure. And and when she had the capacity to see that, and he had the capacity to to sort of accept her for what she was, I really came to love both of those characters. Um, and if you if you had to ask me which which ones I feel the most emotionally tied to, it it might end up being the two of them. And they grew the most because I live in Seattle, so I understand the Seattle culture of it. And mm. even even reading it, I, I felt a little bit at loggerheads with with the with the Florida culture because I've just been raised in Seattle. So I yeah, there are certain things. But the thing I will say about being raised in Seattle is we do passive aggressive great. <laughs> and um, it's 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 funny because, you know, if you don't if you don't know the passive aggressiveness, everybody's like, oh, it's just it's just South Canada. no. No, yeah. we're nice, but yeah. we're passive aggressive. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little thing, and I think you, I think you get that right uh, with Brian a little bit too. I, I, he's he definitely has has moved there and and has has kind of by osmosis uh, gotten some of that. I think. Um, yes. So, so I know that I know that Frank was a was a professor. Frank is Cindy's husband, who is off page by the time the book starts but he's a he's a big part of the book because he's a big part of of their lives now he studied percy shelley when you were a professor did you study anybody any specific authors yeah well i was hired at dickinson as the medievalist so chaucer would have been the main guy um and uh certainly spent a lot of time teaching medieval literature um robert louis stevenson kind of took over the whole second part of my life it's funny i was i was wanting to read a book by uh, valerie martin called mary riley which is a story of one of the housemaids that she wrote in 1990 the story of one of the housemaids in in dr jekyll's house Mm -hmm. because i was into really ever since rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead when i saw that in college i've been into the the stories of people within other stories. Um, Absolutely, you know, yeah. Kind of forgotten characters. And I wanted to read about this woman, but I had honestly never read 
strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, everybody knows that story to a degree, but not everybody's actually read it. So I read it and it was it just overwhelmed me. It, it, the subtlety of that story is is just remarkable. And I got more and more into to that. And then I did a scholarly book on Jekyll and Hyde is an allegory of alcoholism. And in the process of, of writing that, I discovered that the, the novella was turned into a play, which was then blamed for inspiring Jack the Ripper. Uh, oh. And as soon as I found that out, I said, oh, my God, I got to write about that. And that's my first novel, Seeking Hyde, is, is about how Stevenson came to write uh, Jekyll and Hyde and how it affected him when he found out that this warning about a certain kind of wildness might have inspired somebody to the, the worst depravities that London had seen for for centuries. Um, but anyway, yeah, that Stevenson then became my major my major focus. So all the way from Chaucer to Stevenson, England to that's Scotland. A, that's a yeah. long way to go, man. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, so I, having read uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, I'm amazed by how much he does in 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 how little word count space he mm. does so much with so little and it's such yeah. a it's such a lesson uh to authors because i think sometimes authors say hey as if if i can write a 500 page book i can say something massive you know i can say something yeah. big and then you realize if i can write a 200 page book that distills that message yeah it does it better i don't know why that is but it seems to be true what do you think yeah and uh, you're absolutely right and and that that little thing is dense i mean it's like it's like um what is it? The cake you get at Christmas, uh, fruit cake. Fruit know? cake, yes. It's really it's packed full of horror and and all kinds of other things. But um, it's it's also there's not a lot of dialogue in it. And and I, I think if you're willing to write in in third person narrative without a lot of dialogue, you can cram a lot in. And one of the things that I feel very strongly about uh, about apocryphal poses, and this isn't to say that it's just fluff. But I, I, I think the dialogue really carries the book. There's there's not a lot of authorial commentary in there. Right. Um, and and on one level, I suppose it, it makes for a little more length than might be there. But it let me let the characters um, kind of find out who they were in conversation with other people. So it went it went in places and I think it has a kind of dramatic uh potency to it that it wouldn't have if I were just standing back as the third person narrator saying first this and then this and this there's a lot of that backstory early on but right I really start liking the book when it, when the characters are just talking well and I think you know because Hemingway always said that the thing to do is let the is to let the uh, is to let the characters tell the story and what he means right. by that is dialogue 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 get my voice out of it. Like, get me out right. of here. I am just the, I'm the report. And that's how Hemingway would always do it. He's the reporter. So he's reporting. Right. The, I think the key to, to writing a uh, third person, I guess, well, is to make sure that you are showing and not telling because oftentimes when a first time, you know, when a, when a, when a new author is writing third person, they will summarize and they will, and they will tell everything. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a real, it's, it's a real line. Uh, and it's a thin line between I'm, I'm telling in a way that a reporter would and I'm, and I'm, and I'm showing. 
in a, in a way that a reporter would. So I, I think if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. And honestly, one of one of the books I most admire in the world is is um, Remains the Day by Kajo Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if you've read it, but there's... Uh, there's I've seen the movie, which I feel bad about. I have to read it. I've oh, seen the movie. Well, yes, read the book too, but it's a great, yeah. it's a great movie. I mean, Hopkins nails that uh, the way he nails Hannibal Lecter. But um, there's there's a scene there in in the book where his father has just died. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a butler in a house, and his father has just died. And there's this young character that's later played by Hugh Grant in the movie, who comes up to him, and and the description of of going back to his duty in the midst of, of his father just having died. He's very focused on his the job he's supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And another character says, Stevenson, Stevens, are you crying? And, you know, so it's another it's another character in the book who yeah. describes something that the the narrator himself is not touching on in the least. And it's right. just a brilliant moment of what you're talking about, where where the it's the characters who tell the story even beyond what the narrator is able to do right Um, yeah and i just feel like uh when if an author can can write that way then your characters feel more alive because you can really tell when an author is writing dialogue to get something across that's very expositiony i mean when i was when i was editing when i was editing books and i was working for an agent I I got this book one time that said, do you remember that book by Stephen King called Christine with the car? And it's like, oh, my God, who talks like this? Yeah. And the, the answer is no one. But they're like, if yeah. I don't say exactly what it is, people might not know what it is. And that's honestly, right. if, if, if I write a book and somebody doesn't get one pop culture reference, that's more on them than on me, as long as I describe it well. Yeah, um, no, you're right. And but if if you're so worried about pop culture references that you can't write anything else, <laughs> or that you can't write them well enough, it's going to take people out of the story. And that's the big yeah. lesson I think for authors is just yeah. keep people in the story. And I, I think you did such a good job of that. So I guess my question is: Did you always know that you were going to go as deep with this as far as the as far as the like? assisted suicide of it all it's not really assisted suicide but it kind of is because she goes into hospice i mean i hope don't think it's a it's a spoiler that's kind of what happens Mm -hmm. um she 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 goes into hospice instead of instead of uh in-home care or anything that would keep her alive because she has gotten to the point so did you always know you wanted to go that route yeah, I mean, again, going back to the basing this basing Cindy's character on my on my mother in law that that was her reality. So that was a kind of given, and and then everything else uh, could sort of flow spontaneously from that as a given fact. And, and one of the differences between the last book and this one is basically seeking high, with the exception of the whole Jack the Ripper hunt, which happens at the end, mm-hmm. is kind of Sherlock Holmes sort of thing, which Stevenson is involved in. But everything else was was outlined by history, by actual uh, biography. And so what I was doing was simply, I mean, it's almost as though I picked up a, a biography and I said, okay, I'm going to write this scene and this scene and this scene. I'm just going to invent the words that reflect an historical actuality. So the mm-hmm. whole book was sort of filling in a, a mold that was already there. The only thing that was molded in in, in uh, Pocketful of Posies was, was uh, Cinny's as based on Claudia's decision to, right. to sort of take her life 
in hand and and ended in a way that she felt was appropriate. So yeah, that was that was fixed from the start, and then then everything else worked off of that. And of course, it's such a radical decision that yeah, let the other characters respond to it as they would. I mean, originally Brian is horrified that 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 uh, yeah. Grace has agreed to let their mother stop eating, and and so the, there's the fact, and then the characters sort out how they feel about it. So. Well, I mean, I just as a, I was reading that, you know, and I have parents that are getting older now and uh and and i thought to myself and i had seen my grandmother go through hospice mm-hmm. and uh and and pass in that way and and so i thought what would i do if if one of my parents came to me with this and had you know had gone through the parkinson's issue that or something similar yeah. um and uh and i think i would say all right that's Look, it's it's their last bit of agency. It's what they mm-hmm. want to do. Right. It would it would hurt me, but like they're not doing it because because of me. They're doing it because life has gotten to the point where it's no longer worth it. And right. um and I think that's, you know, it, it's a it's a good commentary in this book. I think because I think a lot of people uh who are siblings uh and who are children of boomers at this point are having uh similar are, are having similar talks or or close to it. Yeah. You know, how how do we and and there's a big difference between I am a I am a parent who is parenting and I am a child who now must sort of move into that role for my parent. Yeah. Right. That's a that's a tough transition to make. Um, it, it really is. One one of the things you, you mentioned that uh, how how would you respond were it to happen? I uh, my wife is really helping me out with the, the whole presentation of this book and she did the website and all. And she had the idea of, of putting together some book club questions. And and mm. I'm a professor, you know, so my book club questions would be things like, you know, yeah. this particular theme is picked up in the imagery of Pat chapter six. You know, what what classical illusion can we see from the works of Virgil? But and she was she was saying, no, no, no. The the questions need to be if one of your parents came to you with this as a request, could you right. support it or not? And and I, you know, I, I think the book really does touch on a lot of things that that uh, people are going through currently, and I, I, agree. I, you know, I almost said when you when you pointed that out, I I almost said, well, I hope they're going through these rigors, and I don't. I mean, nobody nobody should be going through this kind of stuff, but in terms of of the potential for the book to speak to people, right? Then if there's if there is an audience out there that's experiencing similar things, then it's it's wonderful they have a chance to live through somebody else's sorting through of the the challenge. Uh, well, yeah, it, it, I, I, I don't think that 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 particular challenge is talked about a lot in literature. There's a lot of brother sisters uh, or sister sister uh, stuff where you where you see them coming together, sisters and brothers or whatever, or siblings. But there's not a lot of how do I deal with my parent getting older and me then having to sort of make the decision but not wanting to make the decision because it's not my decision yet yeah. to make um yeah, I, I think of king lear as an early example of yeah yeah an aging father who sort of throws spanners and works for all his family members but yeah you're right it's not a and i you know i think in, who knows whether other cultures have done better sort of confronting and dealing with death than ours but i i think a, American culture, as I know it, is not great at, at 
sitting down and having conversations about the way it all ought to end. Well, when I talked to uh, I talked to Rob Schwartz, who whose father Maury Schwartz uh, was the subject of Tuesdays with Maury, and mm. the whole thing he said because I guess Maury had written a book before he before he passed, and it just got published recently. And uh, what he said was, you know, America is not good at dealing with the elderly in culture. Uh, there are cultures that are great at that. Uh, the Japanese culture is pretty good, uh, you know, but no, America, once you're past the 18 to 49 demographic that advertisers covet. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's sad because, you know, my grandfather, one time he said to me, and he was just about to leave us, you know, he, he was very, he was, he was elderly. And he said, you know, you just, you finally learn how to live life and then you have to go. Hmm. You, yeah. You, you get there. You, I, I got this. I nailed it. I know how to do it. And then, yeah. And that's yeah. that's sort of what it feels like for for Cindy. I think she she's got, and I think that's why she's okay making the decision. You know, she she had got she she got everything she wanted out of it. I think. And once when I say everything, I think the trip is part of that. The trip that is most part of that of, of this book is the last thing she wants and it's it's the thing that she really needs them to do and of course they go ahead and do it but yeah uh, yeah yeah just related to what you were saying i came across something the other day that that uh, was somebody one of those little epigrams you see on social media or somewhere and it, and it said i always thought it would take longer to get old <laughs> yeah you know, you just you sort of do rush into this this stage of advanced wisdom, and then and then when you don't get a chance to to pass it along, it can be unfortunate. But she does. I mean, she uh, she has that chance to be to be. I would say brutally honest, but but yes. I, I really think she's being loving lovingly honest. Yeah, with her family, and it it lets her get to a point that that probably is a happier point for her as she's imagining them reading her, her confessions, then she's probably been at other stages in her life. Well, I think on a certain level, that's the idea that death is easier for the dying than it is for the living, because mm -hmm. we have to go on after, after, right. after, <laughs> you know, there's an after the world keeps moving, even if uh, your person or your people have yeah. passed. So yeah, I, <laughs> I I was affected by this book. I think it 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 really brought up some 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 thoughts in my mind. And it, the interesting thing you were talking about earlier, with the sibling rivalry, with uh, mm -hmm. the fact that Brian is 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 further removed, kind of, from the care of Cindy, so isn't, but is is sort of horrified by the idea that Grace is okay with with the decision that, that mm -hmm. Cindy has made. And and I I, I thought about it, and you know. I don't have sibling rivalry with my brother or my sister. The weird part is my, my dad and I are both writers. Um, hmm. And if I have any kind of sibling rivalry at all, it's with my father. Hmm. Yeah. But it's not, it, it, it's, it's weird because I call it sibling rivalry. It's because we're both good at what we do. Yeah. And uh, the, early on in, in, in my, in my writing career, and when I say early on, I mean, when I was like 10 years old, uh, we made we made this uh, this bet and we said, uh, all right, which one of us is going to be the first to make uh, is going to be the first to make a bestseller list, you know, and uh, yeah, and neither of us have yet. But that's yeah. it's you know, it's like, let's get there. Let's go. So I really, you know, but I do 
I also really like the way that you characterize Brian because I feel like he he's a character we don't see a lot uh, in 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 literature in that he is I mean it says it in the in some of the in some of the uh, copy for the book but he is he is a bisexual character mm-hmm. um, and and I I don't I don't often see that in 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 literature. And that's the reason I wrote my book um, because I am handicapped and I don't often see handicapped characters. So anytime I can right. see a character that I don't often see that that is that is done well, I have to point it out to the author if I can. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. thanks, thanks so much. Yeah, I uh, he was an interesting character for, for for me to write, and and my son is gay, and and he was one of my first readers of this, and and I was really keen to know whether he thought Brian was a plausible character, you know, could mm-hmm. somebody be living with, with Kingsley Shaw for four or five years and then uh, meet Ella and, and just become totally smitten. And and he said, absolutely. As far as he knows, I mean, he hasn't had that experience, but right. it's nothing in the world that he inhabits that he said kept him from thinking that that would be a possibility. But I, you know, I, I was stretching myself to write that character, obviously, yeah. but uh, much more than I did for Frank or much more than I did even for Jack. But but I, I guess it I guess it passed muster with with my son. And I, Timmy certainly would have told me if it didn't, you know, not that I not that I have a sibling rivalry with him, but we do have a you know, we have a healthy kind of sparring relationship and we we don't hold anything back from each other. No. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little behind the scenes. So I I I live in Seattle, uh, across the water from Seattle. There is a a town called Kingston, where my grandparents lived and where I spent a lot of my childhood. And uh, when when Kingsley is talking about there being a hospital in Kingston, at first I was like, there's not a hospital in Kingston. Cause I was thinking <laughs> Kingston, Washington, cause we're talking about in yeah. Seattle. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, they're talking about Jamaica. Yeah. Oh my good. Okay. And That's literally funny. I had a, and I had about 10 pages of like, I don't know that when there was there a hospital in Kingston, that was just yeah. a funny, funny moment in my, in my reading life. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is great. One of the one of the parts that that I I sort of like in in the book, and I, I'm just I'm doing a bunch of readings now, and I'm trying to select the things to to read. Yeah. And this would be too too long to do, but I I love the I love the bit where where Brian is kind of annoyed that Kingston is so patient with him, you oh, know. That, and and then that Kinsley, that Kinsley is so you you said Kingston. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That, right. That he's that he's so so patient, and then finally. Um, when he becomes terribly impatient, Brian wants a little more of that of that patience back. It's uh, that 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 sort of grass is always greener in a relationship, and and uh, th- that is such an it's it's such a loving character. I yeah. I I did feel. I mean, yeah, you know, Brian felt what he felt and had to move on, and obviously, but I did feel for for Kinsley. I I thought that uh, it it was it was a little bit unfair what happened to him, but it's also life. Yeah. That's yeah. Life. Yeah. The, the, I think you know the reason we write stories is to try to make sense out of life, and to try to give life a narrative arc that it mm-hmm. doesn't often have in in real life. Like, is there a reason I threw my back out? No, you just threw your back out. You're 41 yeah. years old now, so that, that happens. Yeah. Um, but you know, if I'm going to write a story about it, I'm going to give. I'm going to have there be a reason why that might have happened. You know. Yeah. Um, 
And you, I, you sort of, I hadn't really thought about it, but I, I, I feel for Kingsley too. Um, and at one point, at one point, Brian, uh, I, I think Ella's saying, do you think, do you think Kingsley asked this question because he's trying to get at you? Mm. And, and Brian says, no, he's not like that. You know, I mean, there's that loving recognition even, even then, but there's one of the great examples of of of, a, of an author who who did something with a character he didn't want to was was uh, Dickens who killed Nancy off had Bill Sykes kill Nancy and mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. twist. and he said for the rest of his life that he was sorry he had done that and I don't I never you know I never thought I would get to a point with one of my characters that I that I felt as though I'd done him wrong but he felt me see maybe that the poor Kingsley gets an unfair shake there well unfair maybe but. Yeah. I mean, it's something that has to be done. Sure. It's it's one yeah. of those things that as authors, you know, you're going to shortchange somebody at some point. Yeah. Um, I So my first book is called What Death Taught Terrence, but we follow Terrence the whole way through the afterlife and everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, in a writer's group, the question was once asked, how do you feel about killing off your characters? And I said, oh, I hate doing it. I don't, I, 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 I go, I've never done it. And my friend looked at me and went, your book is called What Death Taught Terrence. And I was like, yeah, but he never, like, he, we're with him. He never dies for me. Yeah, like, yeah, he, he dies yeah. He dies on the on the plane of, like, earth life, I, but he's never dead. You know, but then you look at a book like The Stand, and at one point Stephen King was, you know, he was blocked. He was like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I have so many, I have so many characters. My cast is so huge, and they're all coming together. What do I do? And his decision was, I need to kill half of them right now. Just kill half of them. And he can do that. You know, mm. uh, I it's it's so weird to me that, you know, some authors have no problem with that. I don't know. I I am empathetic, so I would have a problem with that. Yeah. Do you do you feel when you finish a book that that you miss the characters and you don't want to let them go? If if I've done it right. If I, if, if I haven't, and I know it needs to be revised, I'm like, what's missing from this part that mm -hmm. makes me kind of wish I knew more or, or had done more. Uh, but if so I've done it right, then yes. Yeah. So it's almost a criterion of revision to get to the point where you don't want to say goodbye. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think, and I think that uh, it comes down to also how well have you written them as far as dialogue is concerned, because mm -hmm there has to be a goodbye moment at some point. And if, if you've written it well enough, the dialogue will flow from it. Yeah. I, I've also noticed, and I don't know if you do this, um, I will eavesdrop at, at restaurants and listen mm. to the way people talk because mm. I feel like that helps my dialogue. It helps me know what someone would say in this situation, you know, and, uh, and I feel like, the authors who aren't quite ready yet are the authors, like I said, who the dialogue just doesn't quite mesh. Yeah, it's um, I, I was really delighted. One of the one of the people I worked with at Dickinson is Susan Perabo, is a wonderful writer. And, and she was one of the blurbers for the Posey's book. And she talked about my dialogue sparkling, which is probably giving it too much praise. But <laughs> but it's it's really flattering to to think that she she hears authenticity and in the way my characters speak. And, and, and there's a lot of opportunities when you got a 16 year old Sage and you've got, you've got a uh, Cine, you know, who is at Woodstock, everybody comes with a different kind of set of linguistic yes. tools. And, and it was really fun trying to craft, 
it was really fun trying to craft the way each of them each of them would speak. So and and that's you know you don't, you can't begin to do that unless you listen really carefully to the way people people actually talk. Um, yeah, I think that's true. One question that has essentially two parts. If if someone wants to get a hold of you online, where would they do that? And what is coming next from Tom Reed? Okay, um, I I have a website, thomasreedauthor.com, T-H-O-M-A-S-R-E-E-D, author.com. Okay. Do you want uh, like social media handles? You can, you can give me that and I'll put it in the show notes. Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, right now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, on Facebook is Tom Reed Jr., J-R-35. Okay. What am, I'm looking at the symbol and not even making sense of what it is. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, I'm actually on TikTok and that's Tom Reed 35, Tom Reed, R-E-E-D 35. And Instagram, that's what that icon is. Yeah, Instagram. Instagram is Tom Reed Jr. 35. Okay. I will, uh, I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes. And, uh, and do you know what's coming next? Do you have another novel that's coming? Uh, or? That's, that's a great question. I, there are two things that are kind of done. I did, and, and this is a whole different order of thing. There's a 14th century poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, in Middle English that I've translated into contemporary English. And wow. if I were able to get an illustrator for that, you know, somebody who could really kind of put some images together that were really popping, I might try to do that. I published a, a kind of mountaineering ghost story uh, maybe 20 years ago. And, and I've thought of expanding that out. It's, it's probably 5,000 words. And I've that been sounds fun. That, expanding that sounds like out a, in, yeah. into a novella. And then the other, while we're with the end of life theme, uh, yeah. another would be a, a, a retired individual, hopefully not too much like me, but who decides to hike the Appalachian trail oh. uh, and is joined for different sections by people from his life that, that have been important to him uh, or who want to be with him. Uh, oh, wow. That's cool. I like that idea. The, the, the challenge there would be to have something also happening on the trail. So it wasn't all just revisitation of the past life. Right. And I'm puzzling around with what that might be. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm so immersed in, in, you know, doing all the the stuff you have to do to try to sell a book right now that, oh, that yeah. I'm not well, there yet. People don't realize that, uh, you know, if you don't have, and even sometimes if you do have a big five uh, publisher, uh, you have to do everything uh, as an author. You have to write the book, sure, but you have to like, buy my book, buy my book. Buy, it's like yeah. a big, big sign up. <laughs> yeah. you know? I, oh, it's, that's tough because then you'll get the people who say, oh, you're an author. Um, have you written any bestsellers? Well, no. Right. But the, the reason they're not bestsellers is you haven't read them yet. Like yeah. they would be true. just read, read it, read it. Yeah. And then tell yeah. everybody about it. And then, you know, <sighs> I, I come from a, a, a family that always valued modesty. And even among, among those modest people, I think I've got modesty genes. Like, like mm -hmm. you know, I have my ears. And so it's really hard for me to, to promote myself. Oh, um, I, I get it. I do. You got to do it. You know, you just have to be shameless Tastefully shameless, I guess that's what you, you yeah. want to aim for. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here, Tom. Uh, we will. Uh, the The book is Pocket Full of Posies. It is. It is wonder. It's a wonderful book. It, it's great if you. Uh, it's great if you want to read it as a family too. I, I would say, you know, if hmm. you have a family book club, my mom and I always. We have 
family book club that we kind of do where we read the same stuff and then talk about it. This would be uh, perfect for that. And so I just want to let everybody know that Writing While Handicapped is a podcast solely owned by the Office on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. And goodbye, everybody. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 